Hi, everybody. Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates, contemplates, and sometimes criticizes classic, cult, and current films. I'm Steve Rubin, your host. Here it's always Saturday night, and I'm pleased to welcome my guest, Brooks Wachtel. Hi, Brooks. Hello, Steve. Well, Brooks is a true Renaissance man. He's a He's an Emmy Award-winning television writer. He's a screenwriter. He's a producer. He's an author of the wonderful Lady Sherlock novels. Um, the second one will be out shortly. Uh, he has done documentary films, industrial films. He's one of the great film buffs. And I consider it an honor to share the dais with him tonight as we talk about two films which we are personal favorites of ours and which we talk about frequently, even to the point where we answer the phone doing dialogue, which of course makes us completely mad. <laughs> Those movies, of course, are War of the Worlds and The Time Machine. How, how can we not talk about these movies, Brooks? I mean, we've been talking about them for years. In fact, we probably met because of them. <laughs> it's true. Um, why do you think we are so drawn to these two movies? I think, I think it's a variety of reasons, one of which has to do the point in our lives when we saw them. Yes. And uh, especially now, I think we were both too young to see The War of the Worlds in its original release, but we'd certainly heard a lot about it. And of course, when we finally got to see it, we were enchanted. The Time Machine, I did see. I'm just old enough to, I was a little kid when that came out. And I did see The Time Machine. I remember the Village Theater in Coronado with my friend David Miller. And we were so scared, we kept running up the aisles and the manager of the theater said, either stay in the seat or leave. I'm glad <laughs> we stayed. Well, I, I'm similar to you. I also had a theatrical experience for The Time Machine at the old Pickwood Theater on Pico and Westwood. Um, the previous year, I had re I remembered standing in a very long line around the block to see the Mysterians, you know, one of those Japanese science fiction movies that were really powering it in the wake of Godzilla. Mm -hmm. And the following year, 1960, uh, I went the same line, huge line to see the time machine. Uh, just great memories of that. But let's let's start our discussion. Just to go back, I, oh, I go think ahead. you asked why we were fascinated. On a more basic level, I think because both films have such a magnificent sense of wonder and spur your imagination and your fear and your thoughts and, and your intellect. I, I think they stimulate, we were young minds and they stimulated it in ways that I think still have resonance to us as adults. I think they're both films that the more you see them in different points of your life, the different things you get out of them. And the same with the books with which, on which they are based. Well, you know, the, the fact that they were entertaining and uh, they're, they're, they zip along, movies back in those days didn't waste a lot of time. There was, they just got right into it. And I think that we can learn a lesson today, and I'm sure today's filmmakers could all learn a lesson from the the pure imagination and fun of these movies. Not to say that they're, they're a fun. I mean, War of the Worlds is a, about a catastrophic invasion of Earth where people are dying left and right. But uh, just the characters, uh, I've always been a big fan of 50s and early 60s filmmaking because 
in addition to the great um, technique, the technical expertise of the filmmakers, the actors were fun. They were interesting. And even though we have fun actors today, there was just something special about the actor. So let's let's talk a little bit about The War of the Worlds. This is a, this is a movie that was based on a quite famous uh, a novel by H.G. Wells, the great, great uh, author of speculative fiction at the very dawn of the age of speculative fiction. Did you read the original novel? I've not only read the original novel, I mean, you know, there, there's no definitive version of this novel because H.G. Wells never finished a book. When it would be reprinted, he'd go back and revise it. So I've read both the original serialized version, which is a good deal shorter, the 1898 original, and the version that he reworked that came out in the 1920s, which is the most popular version we have today. And they are, all have little differences. In fact, the difference between the uh, first novel and the serialization is actually quite profound. There's chapters that are not in the original magazine. It came out first in the magazine, Pearson's. And um, the, uh, there, there's things in it that were toned down when it went to novel. The anti-religious elements, some anti-Semitic elements were toned down quite a bit when it went from serialized in a magazine to a novel. There were, there were anti-Semitic elements in the War of the Worlds? Yes, when the narrator's brother is fleeing London, uh, among the crowd is a refugee holding on to his money to the point where uh, he gets run over by the traffic. In the novel, he's just called an eagle-faced man. In the uh, serialization, he's specifically identified as Jewish. Oh, unfortunately. Uh, and it is unfortunate. Um, and also the anti-religious, which, which is quite strong in the book, the curate is the, and, and very much at odds with the way it's handled in the movie. The curate in the book is a despicable character and even more despicable in the earlier serial, serialization. Well, in researching this movie uh, for Cinefantastique back in the 70s, uh, I had a lengthy interview with George Powell, and uh, I started to dig deep into the Motion Picture Academy archives. And as you know, this project goes all the way back to the 20s. It was originally acquired, what they, uh, I guess the silent film rights were originally acquired by Paramount, which maintained all the rights all along. Um, and Cecil B. DeMille was one of the first uh, big proponents of an epic uh, movie like this. Um, and uh, there were various filmmakers through the years before, obviously, George Powell got a hold of it that took a stab at moving the needle forward. One, of course, was uh, DeMille. And then Sergei Eisenstein, the great Russian filmmaker of the Battleship Potemkin, uh, he took a stab at it. Um, I think that like a lot of, like a lot of projects, this, pro this movie ran afoul of budget considerations. Uh, the War of the Worlds is not a very small film by any means. No, and it's interesting that the C.B. DeMille connection carried through so much to the George Palkin, to the George Pal film. Uh, very true. DeMille championed it when elements of the studio didn't want to do it. He recommended the writer, Barry Lyndon, who had written The Greatest Show on Earth. Um, I think uh, 
let's see, uh, also uh, George Barnes, the cameraman, who was a very A-list cameraman, had shot The Greatest Show on Earth, and Samson and Delilah. As well as, uh, as well as he won an Oscar for Rebecca, shot Jane Eyre, Spellbound, two films for Hitchcock. And I think DeMille also recommended, uh, uh, Pal wanted DeMille to narrate the film and DeMille recommended Sir Cedric Hardwick. And I, that's probably why in that opening scene at the movie theater when they're watching the movie come down, there's a big ad for Samson and Delilah. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, in, fact, uh, in fact, in um... fact, Pal was a big friend of Walter Lance, the animator who created Woody Woodpecker. And Woody, Woodme <laughs> Woody Woodpecker makes a cameo in both uh, The War of the Worlds and The Time Machine, interestingly. Um, Did, didn't um, Pal always put some Walter Lance character in, in every film after Destination Moon? I think there's some it, reference to a Lan Walter Lance character in every movie. I think uh, they were very close friends. Uh, uh, Pal goes on in great lengths about the powers of Barry Lyndon, and, and when I started the Cine Fantastique article, Barry had already passed, so I got in touch with Barry's wife, and she found one of his original treatments for the War of the Worlds, which became a very part of, big part of the article I wrote, talking about how, how epic it was going to be, and of course, a lot of that had to be shorn away because of budget limitations. Still, $2 million for a, a science fiction film in 1953 was a good chunk of change, and Pal was the right filmmaker to use that money wisely. I, I saw at one point the breakdown that the above the line on the movie was only 600000 and that the below the line, especially the special effects budget, was the bulk of the 1.4 million. But uh, Pal talks about Barry spent months and months working on the script and turned it in. And uh, I guess uh, Hartman, the head of production at the studio, uh, threw it in the trash can right in front of uh, Pal. And Pal <laughs> exploded, uh, attacked uh, Hartman, Don Hartman, the head of the studio, and grabbed him by grabbed him by the lapels in this big brouhaha. And of course, George Powell isn't exactly the kind of guy who gets into fights. He's a very low key kind of sweet gentleman. And why Frank Freeman, the head of Paramount, uh, the whole studio at that time came into the office, thought he was on a movie set and tore the guys apart. And both sides explained their things. And Hartman, uh, excuse me, uh, Freeman sided with Powell and said, go make your movie. And he told Hartman to back off. And that's when they started uh, uh, true development. Um, another thing I, I thought was very interesting was the, the decision to uh, abandon the idea of walking war machines. Apparently, uh, everyone in special effects at Paramount felt that it would be way too difficult. And of course, this was way decades before digital effects. And so I know that you were always a big fan of those walking war machines. Well, I thought it was interesting that the only way you could have done it back then would have been with stop motion. And stop motion was, of course, where Powell came from. I, I suppose one of the things was just the amount of time it takes to do stop motion. They probably would have been, you know, had to push back the release date a year or so to do the amount of stop motion that would have been required and also, I, I was at a screening of it many, many years ago with Pal and Byron Haskin. 
And I think one of the other things was they thought that the, tri the tripods, and don't forget the era that this film was made in, were kind of dated. And they wanted something more modern. I mean, we're talking, you know, the film came out in 53, so it's probably starting development in 50, 51. No, exactly, and which corresponds, of course, with the whole era of flying saucer sightings and the birth of, of uh, the golden age of science fiction in the 50s. So the idea of making it a little bit more whiz-bang science fiction and not have these clumsy walking war machines was probably right for the times. The irony is, uh, you know, when Steven Spielberg did his remake, they went back to the, uh, the walking tripods, but by then they had the whole plethora of uh, digital effects uh, elements to play with and they could create them and I thought the high point of the remake although I'm not a big fan of the remake uh, I think that the highlight of the remake is certainly the way they conceived of those war machines war machines didn't you agree yes I did and the the war machine the tripods in the book are described as somewhat not not really organic they're glittering metal but or uh, with a kind of animalistic movement and flexible and um, that would have been very hard to pull off in 1953, even with stop motion. And also 1953, I mean, the decision to update it to the era that the movie was made in. Uh, when you think, I mean, right now, it would be a great time to do a Victorian set War of the Worlds, but the, it had never been filmed. Nothing like that had ever been shot. And this is 19, you know, 50, this is five or six years when they start development after the end of World War II. And most of the audience, or a good part of the audience, served in the war. Everyone was certainly aware of it. And you have these emerging, te emerging technologies, jet planes, atomic weapons. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a very exciting and frightening time. And so I don't think a Victorian setting would have played as well. Today, I think it would be wonderful. But back then, to an audience, only a few years removed from the Second World War and going into Korea, um, I think the decision to update it was a smart one. Uh, Pal also said that doing a period, uh, you know, 1890s version would have been much more expensive for them to do. So that, that killed that idea. The, the, the person who came to the forefront here uh, in terms of pure ingenuity is one of my favorite interviews. I, I was able to interview Al Nozaki, who designed the war machines. And uh, Al Nozaki is a very interesting man. Unfortunately, when I interviewed him back in 1977, he was already blind. Uh, an art director, a blind art director, such a strange uh, dichotomy, but he had been a very successful art director. Um, he uh, worked for DeMille. I think, I think his first assignment was on the Crusades. And uh, when he was given the assignment, uh, he, he did the Crusades back in the 30s. And then when the war broke out, like all the Japanese Americans on the West Coast, he was sent to the internment camps. So unfortunately, his career just completely stopped. He ended up going to work in Chicago as an industrial designer and didn't come back to California until after the war. And that's when he got back into Paramount. And uh, he was given the assignment to reconfigure the war machines for a modern audience. And that's where he was inspired by the, as he describes it, the look and texture of a manta ray uh, in the, the, the sleek designs of a manta ray. And that's how these war machines 
have kind of kind of a look of a manta ray quality. And with a with a like a cobra on top. With a cobra head on top. And I think the other the other thing that I have to say about War of the Worlds is the use of sound. Uh, the the uh, you know, Pell was now firmly ensconced in this whole science fiction world. He had done Destination Moon. He had done um, When Worlds Collide. He loved technology, loved the modern whole approach. And I think he told Barry to add as much uh, technical whiz bang, you know, dialogue as he could. And I think this, um, this extended to every aspect of the production, particularly sound effects. I mean, you have a lot of electronic sound three years before Forbidden Planet kind of revolutionized uh, sound in film. And uh, I thought the sound effects for the Martian war machines, heat rays and skeleton beams were quite effective. Um, the technical aspects of the film, I believe it did win the sound editor, sound designers award, and it was nominated in sound for an Oscar. And of course, won the Oscar for special effects for, for good reason. Um, it's it's quite a fascinating movie to watch today because of the technology and you know in in light of today's digital effects which are kind of like rubbing uh, Aladdin's lamp whatever you want to do you can do today what they did to achieve the uh, effect of the of the attack was very very interesting um let's talk a little bit about the casting um i think you had a question for me today that i, I thought I, I thought you had a good question is is the War of the Worlds uh, an A picture or a B picture? Yes, um, and part of it, you know, is the casting uh, because the technical aspects, you, you, you don't have a lot of A-level people. I mean, like George Barnes, top director of photography. Um, Everett Douglas, the editor, was nominated for an Oscar for the War of the Worlds. He also did Naked Jungle later and became the house editor on Bonanza. Um, but I wondered about the cat. Now I've read somewhere that one of the people that Pal was hoping to get was um, William Holden, who was under contract to Paramount. And of course, I, I probably um, the the exec that didn't like the film probably scotched that. And so the the uh, the two leads, and, and and I'm not saying they weren't terrific. Both Gene Barry and Ann Robinson, uh, you know, are faultless in their performances. They are they are simply terrific, but. And they picture if you'd had William Holden or uh, say some of the actresses in, from the, that era, Susan Hayward, Jeannie Crane, even Marie Saint, young Grace Kelly, if you had had those two people in the film as the leads, how would we look at that film today differently? You know, it's interesting. I, I, I think you could argue and say that the star of War of the Worlds was the Martians, that yes. they, they are really what people's eyes are on. I think that the actors, they needed, they needed good actors as every movie always does. But I think that uh, this was not a star power driven movie as are most of the science fiction movies of this era. I mean, my goodness, uh, you know, you never saw the major stars. I know that when they were casting the, the Day the Earth Stood Still, another one of our favorites, they were talking about Spencer Tracy for the alien. And of course that, didn't, that went away thankfully. Well, there, um, is an except, there is an exception, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Both yes. James Mason and Kirk Douglas were at the height of their fame when that was made. They were big A-level stars. 
Well, it, it took Walt Disney to understand the value of a great story and a great effects-driven story and, and great stars. That obviously wasn't the attitude of the other studios. Um, I, I think Gene Barry and Anne Robinson were terrific. I do and, too. Yeah, and the character actors that surrounded the the uh, the leads were also wonderful. We talked about Les Tremaine playing General Mann. Um, all of the actors are just wonderful. Even little Alvy Moore, I remember, who later became the county agent on that wacky Green Acres television series. He plays one of the people who first yells out about the, uh, you know, the arrival hey, of the cylinder. Even the phone's dead. <laughs> and and of course you had the three characters who go out to see the first cylinder drop, uh, including one of them is Jack Crucian, who yes. seven years later Oscar, played Oscar winner. Yeah, who played and who seven years later plays Jack Lemon's neighbor in the the apartment. Um, you know, just wonderful character actors, and oh, and who one who's who? What's the name of the actor? Um, the one that waves the white flag because uh, he 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 had starred in several low budget later would star in several low budget sci fi films. He's a, he's an actor who's in a lot of science fiction movies, and as I'm talking to you, I'm going to look him up real quickly here because we need to identify these people because they're part of the texture of the film. You know, you you can't talk about War of the Worlds without talking about the wonderful cast, and um, uh, I, I remember him well. And I'm looking down the list of uh, of the character. Oh, we we can't. Of course, we remember Paul Freese as the radio reporter. That rich voice of his. And um, actually, Paul Freeze is one because Paul Freeze is almost like a George Pell good luck charm. He narrates the War of the Worlds. He's in, I mean, he, op he does that opening pre title narration. He's in the film. And then, of course, he's the talking rings later on in the time machine. I think we're talking about Paul Birch. Yes, Paul Birch. Yes. Paul Birch played the guy who says, uh, I got an old sugar sack in my, <laughs> my pickup. <laughs> What do you say? What do you say to these guys? How about welcome to California? <laughs> and uh, I, I believe uh, now Edgar Barrier is briefly in it. Uh, I think he was in the remake of the Most Dangerous Game. Um, he's a Canadian scientist, a very small part. Uh, yeah, the, the the character people are just wonderful. I think Pal always always cast brilliantly. One of the most surprising castings is Robert uh, Robert Conway, who is in a very small part, considering he had already had a major part in the thing. Yeah, he he plays one of um, of uh, Clayton Forrester's colleagues, right? Yes, he's the one I can fly him back in your plane. Right, right, and of course you've got Sandro Giglio as Doctor Bilderbeck. Uh, Lewis Martin, who played Pastor Matthew Collins, was also very good, I thought. Um, you know, I, I, love, I love learning about these actors at the time because Hollywood was full of very, very colorful and interesting character actors. It was, I think, the golden age. Well, actually, the 30s was the golden age, but I think it extended into the 50s and... Yeah, yeah, no. that's, that's still considered golden age Hollywood. I think you know, by, it, it, it starts to change by the late 50s. I mean, I think uh, the this is the era where the studios are being forced to divest themselves of their theaters. And that's causing, and television is coming up. So all of that is, is very traumatic 
to the, the, the film industry as it had been. By, by the way, speaking of uh, smaller parts, uh, the, the cop at the crash site who first announces that uh, they're, they're, they're uh, I think they're putting out the fire is Henry Brandon. And Henry Brandon, three years later, played Scar in The Searchers. Oh, yeah, good character people. Good character people, absolutely. So the War of the Worlds has great, you know, great credentials on both sides of the camera. The 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 actors are are terrific. The technical the technical people working on it, many of which had worked with either Pal or Hitchcock or DeMille. You know, we're we're all top of the line. I'm, I, I think though, though, like Stevens, that's if I'm pronouncing it right, great score. He wasn't an A-list composer, but he was certainly an extremely talented one. And he'd had a long history with George Pell. And it's just, it, it's just, uh, well, here's, here's a movie that also just starts with it, just a real rhythm. I mean, as you pointed out, Paul Fries uh, does that little bitty narration about uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, in the First World War and for the, for the first time in the history of man, nations combined against nations to fight the, using the crude weapons of those days. I mean, Paul Fries's voice added so strongly. And then the end of that is like explosion, the war of the worlds. And then after the titles and, and Stephen's great kind of uh, overture, then you get into the soft kind of narration of Ces Ces uh, Cedric Hardwick as he describes the other planets and the pl Martian plot. I thought that was a very poetic opening. It was a, it was a beautiful opening. It had a sense of wonder. Um, the, the artwork, of course, even today, when we know how inaccurate a lot of it is, and we actually have photographs of these planets, the artwork is still just terrific to look at. It is oh, yeah. a, a sense of awe. That's uh, Chesley Bonestell, the great... Uh, artist of, um, you know, interplanetary artist, I guess you could say, although he did all sorts of things. Um, you know, he, he, he did the, the Notre Dame Cathedral, that great pullback at the end of the 1939 Hunchback of Notre Dame. Ah. Uh, now, the logistics for doing this movie, uh, considering, you know, $2 million is $2 million in 1953, that's a good sum, but there were tremendous things they, they had to create. And, um, I know the military shots of the army uh, gradually surrounding the, um, the, the initial uh, Martian, you know, their, their nest was shot in Arizona. They had the help of the Arizona National Guard. Um, you know, when you're watching this movie as a kid and the Martians start their attack and all of a sudden Colonel Hefner with the Marines says open fire and everybody opens fire once, it's an incredible moment uh, of, of military firepower. Nothing is going to survive that firepower. And of course, then again, the Martians being the super race have electromagnetic blisters. It, it, it's a wonderful sequence and it sets the template. I mean, you know, just how many times have we seen that since? Yeah, yeah. And I think, what did, didn't you point out that Independence Day, if you really start to look at Independence Day, it's literally a total remake. <laughs> I, did, well, I, I teach a writing class and, and I was teaching structure and I'll make this quick. And I just said, you guys remember Independence Day? Yeah, yeah, they all remember. I said, okay, let me real quick give you the first, you know, in a few sentences, the first two thirds of Independence Day. 
aliens land. We're not sure of their intentions. You know, we go to greet them. They, they, they destroy the greeting party. We know they're hostile. We attack, but we can't get through their shields, their defenses. The military's on the run. In desperation, we try atomic weapons, but even that can't get through their defenses. It looks like humanity is doomed. Yeah, is that the first two thirds of Independence Day? And they go, yeah. I said, no, that's the first two thirds of the 1953 movie, The War of the Worlds. It's the same movie. It's just different. You know, it's the same story told differently, but the structure is the same. By the way, I always wondered, and if you'll ha you'll laugh at this, and I'm a big fan of Independence Day, which I Me think too. is- Me too, I love it. Yeah, it's just, just total entertainment. But the, um, the jets that are about to attack the, um, the giant Martian saucer are like always kind of, <laughs> they're kind of hovering in position like helicopters waiting for the attack. You ever notice that? It's kind of like they're, 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 they're all staged in a row in front of the, um, in front of this giant saucer or whatever you call it, the giant, uh, you know, whatever they call, it. I guess it is kind of like a giant saucer, more like an oval, but they're, they're, normally they would be whizzing past, right? Um, well, I think it's a matter of scale. They're, they're still several miles off. So given the scale, I think the idea is we're not seeing too much movement because of just the size of the thing. But, you know, don't get me started on the military mistakes and in independence. And for that matter, some of the military groups in the War of the Worlds. Well, tell me, uh, uh, give me an example of a, a military goof in War of the Worlds. Um, they're being attacked by the Marines. Now, one of the things that set the Marine apart, Marines apart, and that the Marines uh, um, developed and perfected during World War II was they had their own organic air support. When they go into battle, they go into battle with air support. And usually the air will come in first to soften things up. Uh, that was one of the things that set them apart, say, from the Army, which, which didn't quite have that, especially after it was split from the Air Force. So uh, the fact that the Air Force comes in later and there's no organic Marine air support, and don't forget El Toro was actually an air base, um, was not how the Marines would have fought. On the well, other hand, yeah. one of the great things about the, the chatter in the War of the Worlds about, you know, ripple fire, you know, prepare for volley fire and things like that, the military chatter and all that is terrific. Of course, don't forget, you have an, a large part of that audience had been in the military. This is only, like I said, half a decade, a little after World War II. Place them behind Phil Hill Thoree. Yes. Hill Thoree. I never knew that the word three had two syllables. <laughs> I, I think they were actually going from, mili you know, military pronunciation for clarity and the fact that the field telephones, the radio, the kind of weapons and, and all of that, you know, all of that, uh, the setup of the battle and the actual battle itself, terrific sequence. One of the odd structural things about War of the Worlds is most films have the big scene at the end. The big action scene in the War of the Worlds is about a third of the way into the movie. Yes, exactly. And still, they pull it off. It's a very unusual structure. And Barry Lyndon's script does it masterfully. I mean, you have this big rise to this big action and the, the battle, and the battle goes horrendously wrong. And from then on, it's just unending disaster. And right. It's like a, bo a boulder rolling down a hill. It just gets worse and worse and worse. Well, as, and as... then suddenly, it's just over. 
Well, as Sir Cedric Hardwick says, it was the route of mankind, but fortunately it all worked, worked out in the end. Um, just a brilliant film. Uh, I think if you haven't seen the original War of the Worlds, everybody, you gotta, you gotta rent it or find it on one of the channels. Uh, it should not be hard to find. It's also in color, which is another big factor. It's in Technicolor. Technicolor, which of course makes this an extraordinary film to see. Uh, and of course the war machines look that much better in Technicolor. Um, and I don't, I don't think you'll find a film that the intensity of the disaster that just keeps going and going. I remember, you know, I was showing it to a friend in 16 millimeter years ago and it's that last scene where everyone's in the church and the Martian machines are coming down the street. The atomic bomb has failed. Civilization has collapsed. And he looks at the reel and sees there's very little film left. And he goes, do we lose this one? <laughs> By the way, the actor who played the pastor in that last church scene, I'm looking up his name. I think he's the father of the Hardy Boys on the Disney series. Uh, so, you know, there's lots of people on this show just from all different walks of life from the business. Um, I thought he was also very effective. I can't find his name, but uh, uh, I, I think one thing that made the War of the World special still does is at the time, no one had ever seen anything like it. Right. I mean, this was the first mass invasion from space type film. Humanity is just completely helpless like I said, civilization is crumbling. There's no hope anywhere. And it's just the danger. It's just, you know, I mean, the hero is reduced to running around the city, just trying to find the girl so they can have a few minutes before they get wiped out. Right. Right, exactly. And you so get to see other- total, totally incapable of having anything to do with the outcome or solution. He's just overwhelmed as is all of humanity. That's a very powerful film. The, um, the Martian, uh, they show a little bit of the Martian. Of course, that was uh, Charlie Gamora, the special effects guy. Uh, he not only created the Martian, he wore the suit. He wore the suit. And just, just very quickly comparing it to the book, the book is even, the book is even more devastating in its bleakness and hopelessness than the well, that, movie. that was one of my problems with the Spielberg remake. I, they decided to to film that whole sequence where they're trapped. And although I understand that was part of the book and it was very well written, I just didn't think that was very good cinema. I just felt that it just kind of fell flat and went on way too long. What was yeah. your impression? Uh, the same, they, they, um, they were combining aspects of the book with the scene from the 1953 movie. Right. And the 1953 movie got it right. It, it almost ventures into horror film territory. It's brief by comparison. It, it's much more focused because you, you, you just have the two of them trying to survive. And the scene in the 53 version was combining uh, the curate character from the book under a different name and and I said aspect from the 53 movie so it, it was too much to put into that scene and because of that they had to lengthen it and I don't think it had the it didn't have the focus the simplicity 
that that the original one had. They both had a terrific sense of danger, as I remember. But the the one from the '53 film, it's still almost horror film territory. Let's switch gears a little bit. Um, seven years go by. Uh, George Powell makes some more films. He does The Naked Jungle the following year. Very uh, unusual film for him. I'm sorry? It's much more, much more character-driven than his usual films. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, the, apparently the same uh, Bozo who was running Paramount at that time, uh, also who, who nearly kiboshed War of the Worlds, asked uh, Powell this. Apparently, Powell said it was true. He asked him if he could take the ants out of the naked jungle. <laughs> Oh, executives and notes, you know, it's. Um... So I guess uh, the 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 um, uh, the H.G. Wells estate was very helpful during these films. Apparently, early in the uh, development of um, or actually early in pre-production on the War of the Worlds, they discovered that to their horror, Paramount only owned the silent film rights to the book. But fortunately, their relationship with the estate was good, so they were able to acquire the uh, sound and theatrical rights properly. And I guess the the estate was so happy with the 53 adaptation that they offered um, uh, Wells, excuse me, they offered George Powell his pick of the litter, and that's where Powell picks up the rights to the time machine. And 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 still has trouble getting it going. Yeah, well, of course, it's Hollywood. Nothing, nothing is easy. Uh, but now he's working for arguably the biggest studio in the world, MGM, that in 1960 or 1959, 1960, was still at the top of their game. Uh, they had all those wonderful backlots, uh, including uh, backlot number three off Jefferson, that if you travel in Los Angeles and drive down Jefferson Boulevard, you see the condo development called Rain Tree as well as some other condo developments there. Well, back in the 50s, where uh, I, I was living and not, not far from there, we used to drive by that back lot. It was interesting because uh, when I drove by the back lot in those days, most of the uh, wooden structures had been burnt. They had fire damage. And I often think that maybe that's where they shot part of the burning of Atlanta in 39. No, they, they shot that on, on um, 40 Acres, which was the RKO lot. Oh, was it? Okay. Uh, well, it, it was part of the RKO lot and Selznick, actually the Selznick lot, I guess. Um, right, right. Uh, but anyway, uh, the lot three, one of the biggest lots in Hollywood, becomes a major character in, um, in uh, the Time Machine, as we'll soon discuss. But um, Time Machine just... Uh, plays and just like War of the Worlds, the time machine just plays. I can watch it every year as if I'm watching it for the first time. Don't you feel the same way? I, I do. Both the War of the Worlds and the time machine are comfort food movies to me. I can watch them again and again and again and always find something new in them, which I think is the mark of a great film. And, and, uh, and, and again, it, it's a partially faithful adaptation of the book. Vast changes in the in the tone and, and actually the very theme of the book. Um, Pal Wells was much more pessimistic and, and Pal was much more optimistic. Tell us a little bit, I have not read the book. So tell us a little bit, it's, it's, it's more of a novella, right? Well, The Time Machine was the book that put H.G. Wells on the map. It was his first successful novel. 
And again, like the War of the Worlds, there's several versions of it. There's the original, I think, 1895, and I may be wrong on the date version that came out. And then it was later revived. Uh, chapters were reordered. It, uh, um, chapter titles were taken out. Textual changes were made. But it was the one that put him on the map. Now, H.G. Wells was not just a writer of speculative fiction. He always had a point. He always had a social angle. And the theme of the time machine is a almost a thesis on the ultimate ultimate fate of capitalism, of the haves and the have-nots, of the rich and the working class. And the Eloi become the rich and the Morlocks the working class, you know, hundreds of thousands of years in the future. And the Eloi, unlike the Eloi in the movie, are not just, you know, kind of dumb, uneducated young people, they've actually devolved. They're about four feet high of extremely limited intelligence. It's very difficult to differentiate the sexes. I mean, when he talks of Wiener, he says, my little woman, if that is indeed what she was. And it's not a romance. It's more like a pet or a child to the time traveler, Wiener. Um, and so the, the book is basically the ultimate, what happens, the, the the have-nots, the workers, are banished to underground factories and eventually become the Morlocks. The rich, because they've got no challenges, devolve into sheer pretty stupidity. Eventually, the way that the, however the Morlocks were fed breaks down, and they just sort of breed the Eloi and take them down and eat them, which, which of course is in the movie. But the whole mechanics and reason for the story was changed for the movie because of course in the 1960s capital and labor weren't a big thing but the cold war was the specter of the bomb once again enters the fray um <clears throat> i um i love the casting i think yes. rod taylor in the history of fantasy films has to be for me one of the great uh, actors to anchor this kind of story um he just, uh, he kind of oozes virility and strength. He's a, a hero, but he's also very charming. And, and he comes across as intelligent too. Right, right. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, the story is that Powell was originally thinking of David Niven or Paul Schofield before wanting someone more, you know, physical to play the, the action scenes. But, but again, you know, David Niven, didn't he he wouldn't have had the budget for that because i know despite his despite his track record the time machine had a very small budget which he brilliantly stretched absolutely i'm looking up uh, the budget uh let's see this it's like eight hundred thousand dollars or something like that is that true is that really true um, uh, it's hard to believe that he had more money for war of the worlds but then again Oh, you're right. The budget, according to IMDb Pro, is seven fifty, which has uh, got almost nothing. Um, but he had the MGM backlot and scene doc, and he had Projects Unlimited, one of the more resourceful special effects companies in the history of Hollywood. I mean, they they were the the go to guys in those days. Gene Warren Sr., Wa Chang, Tim Barr. I mean, they. They really set the bar very high, no pun intended there, with their work. Uh, I remember sitting down with Hua Chang and they were talking about the, um, the lava stream after the uh, 
in that sequence in the movie. I don't want to give too much uh, spoilers because some people may not have seen The Time Machine, but I doubt if there's few, any of you who have not seen what is considered one of the great movies of all time. But uh, I know that the lava stream was made with oatmeal. The, the special effects in The Time Machine, which, which won an Oscar, looking back, some of them stand up brilliantly, others not so much, but considering the money they had to work with, and Powell was just very clever. The Eloy, uh, the Eloy set where they're all dining. Of course, you have. Should I go into this now or? Sure. Okay. He's on the back lot, and you have the Kismet steps. This was a gigantic staircase uh, built on the MGM back lot for the film Kismet that was just saved for other productions. And later used. That, later used twice for the Twilight Zone. In fact, part of the Eloy set is visible in the Twilight Zone with Burgess Meredith, where the bomb goes off. Right. As well as various props from the time machine. So they probably were filming around the same time. And so he built the entrance to the time machine, the entrance to the Eloy Palace, you know, at the top of these. The interior of the Eloy Palace uh, was built outside, covered with muslin, so you could move faster, didn't have to spend as much time lighting, and it was cheaper. Didn't have to pay the overhead for the electricity. And as I've seen pictures, it's a very simple set. Um, you know, some tables, some chairs, uh, painted, uh, painted floor, and a little bit of wall and, and a doorway. And it looks amazing, especially when it, the long shot with the matte painting. And a lot of blondes. And a lot of blondes, yes, who speak perfect English, <laughs> which the Eli in the book do not. Books? Um, but he, books? Had David, he had David Duncan uh, writing that one. And again, he, he got a really good writer. Really good writer. And I think that there's such an attention to detail. Uh, uh, the, the, the sense of atmosphere is wonderful, starting from the very beginning. And when you're in the... Um, you're in H.G. Uh, Wells's home and you're in the, in the uh, I guess it's the dining room with all the clocks and you see the people waiting and waiting for, uh, for and of course, the, and again, a wonderful cast. You've got Alan Young, you've got Bert, uh, uh, Sebastian Cabot, you've got Whit Bissell, um, or and Whit Tom Bissell. Helmore. And I'm sorry? Tom Helmore. And Tom Helmore, of course. And who's. Tom Helmore is the guy that sends J Jimmy Stewart hunting, following his wife in Vertigo. That's right. That's right. Vertigo plays the hard-drinking Mr. Bridewell, and it's just when when George shows up, it's just I, I you know it's interesting. That's from I the book, by the way. It's from the book, right from the book. I can remember sitting in the Pickwood watching that movie for the first time. There, there are a few movies I just remember the thrill of just watching them and the time machine from the get-go, there's no dead air in this movie. It gets you right at the beginning and then it, it involves you in a fascinating trip. Now, time travel in 1960 uh, in film was virtually unknown. I, you know, I mean, there's been, there were a few, I mean, it's interesting because um, uh, Rod Taylor had previously done a film for Fox called, um, uh, what is it called? Um, you know the film um yeah, he, he's at uh, the spaceship goes through the time barrier right the... right um uh <laughs> now we're, we're showing our age here but it's um but but um, i mean it, it the type of time travel where you're and hg wells invented this concept of a time machine 
and gave it its name, where, where you're actually sitting in a thing, you're sitting in a device, and, and you're rushing through time the way a, a car would rush through or down a road. I mean, that linear kind of change. The, the title I was thinking of is called World Without End, which right. technically right. is a time travel movie, but obviously you don't have a time conveyance like we have in the time machine. But by 1960, I think people were open to the concept of time travel and PAL delivers a, a, a beautiful plate of it. And um, I think, uh, sadly, we just lost Yvette Mimiu, uh, who played Weena. And was there a more extraordinary introduction of a young actress at that time? Uh, wouldn't you agree? She was wonderful. And, and just as an aside, we both went to the same high school, Hollywood High, but at different times. Oh. But yeah, and uh, it's, uh, but getting back to your time travel point, don't forget the one thing that you wouldn't be able to get away with in a, if you were doing that film today is you have almost a 15, 20 minute scene after he appears where he explains time travel. He shows the little model disappearing and you have this setup with Philby about why his wonderful motivation as to why he's going on the trip. That is a very long dialogue scene. It's almost like a play. It's because it's, it's almost 20 some minutes into the movie before he sits in that saddle and takes off. Oh, I know. You have Sebastian Cabot's character uh, talking about, uh, have you thought about the commercial application of this thing? <laughs> and, I, yeah. and he says, no, frankly, I haven't. <laughs> I, I think, well, it's a wonderful scene. It works brilliantly and you and I both love it. I cannot see that ever being in a modern film. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because uh, 19 years later, um, Nicholas Meyer, who will be on the show next, you know, my next show actually talking about time after time, almost has the same sequence in almost the same part of the movie. So uh, I guess Nick Meyer also felt he needed that little moment of instruction. And um, uh, of course, Matt, uh, uh, Malcolm McDowell does a brilliant job of, of being the, uh, the instructor there as well. So, but, um, you know, once, once uh, Rod, or I should say Wells, goes into his chamber with the machine and starts to play around with time, it's really quite fascinating. And I love the fact that looking out his front window is a dress shop with a mannequin. I thought that was a really nice touch. That was a wonderful, one of the things, because um, the screening I saw, I think David Duncan was also there because they ran the World Worlds and the Time Machine. Um, one of the reasons they kept it in the 1890s, rather than updating it as they had done with the War of the Worlds, was Pal and David Duncan felt that by putting it in the past and having the time traveler travel through events the audience knew really happened, would make the time travel aspect more believable when he got into the future. Yeah, that was very effective. I, I thought that, you know, it's, uh, you know, Alan Young playing also his son in 1917, I thought was a really nice touch. And the whole idea. Beautiful scene. Yeah, beautiful scene. Um, and of course, he comes back again uh, as an old man in 1966, which would have been six years after the time when I saw the movie. So it was technically our future. Yeah, with atomic satellites and nuclear destruction, uh, you know, hovering. Um, another very, very good musical score as well. Oh, Russell Garcia, yes. Um, 
I think the story of Russell Garcia had been doing some very experimental music and Pal hired him and then the opening scenes had that kind of music and Pal said, no, no, it doesn't work. So he saved the dissonant type music for the sci-fi parts and gave us that beautiful Philby theme um, for the opening. They're pretty, very English sounding, you know, touching, haunting melody. Dun, 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 dun. Gorgeous stuff. Beautiful, and beautiful, gorgeous stuff. Um, I, I think it might be, you know, uh, and I could be wrong about this, but the best, the best score in any George Powell movie. It's, you know, the, from the opening titles uh, to the, you know, with the lightning striking Big Ben to the ending. Um, it's just, it's just a perfect Saturday afternoon movie. Those of you who have not seen the original Time Machine, run, don't walk to your digital player and find a copy of this. It's, watch it around two o'clock on a Saturday. It's a perfect time to watch that movie. Um, it's just, um one of our favorites. Brooks, this has been terrific. I think you and I could go on and on about how much we love these these two wonderful H.G. Wells adaptations. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think we can say enough about them, frankly. Uh, the, War of the, World, uh, the War of the Worlds and the Time Machine are two icons of film science fiction. They've both been remade, ripped off, and have not, to my my way of thinking ever been bettered when when there were limitations to making them pal and his team used the limitations brilliantly and both films have heart a sense of wonder they don't insult our intelligence they they are real testament to smart filmmaking and based on two and do justice to uh, two seminal books, even though they've taken some liberties with the books, I think they end up as terrific works of art in their own right. We've been sharing the dais with my good friend, Brooks Wachtel. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Brooks. Uh, everybody, we've been uh, on the uh, Lock 22 network. Each week we bring you a little slice of film history from various people. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, thank you again, Brooks. It's been fun talking about our favorites. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry we only had an hour because I think we just scratched the surface. Very, very true. Please tell your friends about Steve Rubin, Saturday Night at the Movies. We need all the help we can get. Uh, we want to get a big viewership or a listenership. Be safe, everybody. Thank you. <laughs>